1: Welcome to Lit Up. There really couldn't be a more timely
0: episode or a feminist writer to speak with than Rebecca Traster. She is a contributing writer for New York Magazine, and she really takes things that have happened in the news or things that are happening around us politically and literally will make sense of it overnight. Now, though, she's written a book called Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger. This book is an excellent guide to unpacking and illuminating the historical context for the Me Too movement and this outpouring of anger that women are feeling at the moment. And not just women, men too, but this this overwhelming feeling of injustice. Through exhaustive and compelling research, Trayster examines women's anger as a political tool, one that's long been ignored as a catalyst for social change. She also examines what patriarchy means, and I think sometimes we get confused about what is patriarchy, why are people so angry, what are these structures all about. This book is really a guide to that. She examines why women's voices have been marginalized for so long, and also what we can do about it. I was lucky enough to record with Rebecca in New York around the period of the Supreme Court hearings for the US Supreme Court, you know, amidst the allegations of sexual harassment against Judge Brett Kavanaugh, it was a moment we were all feeling raw and vulnerable and wondering how to look forward, seeing that he was nominated regardless of being accused of um, these things. Speaking with Rebecca, as you'll hear, she became flushed and completely kind of impassioned. And I know you'll be able to hear that in this episode. So it was such a pleasure to talk to her and I hope you enjoy it. What an honor to have Rebecca Traister opposite me in the flesh. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Your book is Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger. Thank you for writing it. Thank you for reading it. And I just wanted to say I feel that when things happen in our culture and in our world right now as they relate to women and power and sex and everything going on, you're the person that I look to or my friends look to across the globe. In Australia, everyone says what she said because I need her to help make sense of things for me. And one of the things that is so prevalent, even right up in the book, is this idea of um, history and giving credit. Um, can you talk a bit about this idea of giving credit, particularly as a, a white feminist?
2: Well, so there are a couple things that you mm-hmm. just said in, in that that I want to go back and Great. address that gets us to the Perfect. giving credit and white feminism and all of this, right? So you said that when you read the book. Um, it unleashed in you a certain kind of anger. And it's interesting because I wouldn't, I I wrote this book with a couple of real purposes, which has not always been true of stuff I've written in the past, certainly not exactly true of the books that I've written. Um, And one of the purposes wasn't to make women angry, but rather to offer some context An affirmation that their anger is something that they might want to consider and see in a larger historical context and also in a context of um, political reality, of race, of gender, of power, to understand a little bit more about what the anger that they're encouraged in so many directions, from so many directions to tamp down, that that anger has political seriousness and weight that it has been historically crucial to some of the social movements and and political changes that have shaped this country. And of course, you know, politics and social movements around the world. Um, So I wanted to offer that context kind of as a tool to help um, women think more about the anger that they feel, that they may swallow, that they may stuff down, that they may feel shame about or feel that it makes them irrational in some way, but it's also to help a certain kinds of women, um, who have not previously expressed that anger or thought about it in those ways to understand that they're not the first to be there, right? And that gets us to race and whiteness and white feminism Um, because one of the things that's happened in the past two years since the election of Donald Trump is you've seen a real awakening of rage amongst white women that's been taken as problematic in many quarters because, of course, a majority of white women voted for Donald Trump um, in the 2016 election. They then sort of started the idea of having a women's march in which they immediately appropriated the name of a demonstration, the million women's march, which was the first idea, um, put forth by the couple of white women who had, who first started organizing the women's march. That's actually the name of a demonstration that was staged by black women many years before. Um, there has been an interrogation that is long overdue, uh, about the ways in which white women have voted for, not just Donald Trump, but Republicans in all but two elections going back since 1952. I am coming from the perspective of, it is correct that white women are feeling anger about all kinds of things. And part of what this book is attempting to do is to both consider why affirm that I believe that that anger is correct (laughs) and also let some of those women know where that anger falls historically and who's been expressing anger, um, not only about the same things that some of these newly angry women are expressing anger about, but also anger at them for some of the ways that they've participated in, benefited from the same kind of white white, patriarchal capitalist systems that they're now feeling anger about. So I'm trying to to both, to not chase off white women who are newly angry. I'm glad, and I think it's important, and I think it's coming from good places, but also to help elucidate some of the historical, racial, um, economic realities around where white women have been until very recently. Does that make sense? I don't know if I'm being clear in all of this. Okay.
0: And I think part of um, what I was saying about tapping into anger is this this numbness that happens to us when we acknowledge something. Like when Trump was elected, we had feelings and then the news gets so crazy, the the allegations of me to bring up more things. And actually, instead of me actually understanding how to use that anger in a positive way to make change, I think... Your book made me acknowledge how I had numbed myself again, like time and time and again, so I didn't have to necessarily confront how the peop- the men I love mm-hmm. still have certain opinions. Mm-hmm. So your book was almost a
2: self you know acknowledgement as well. Your question makes me think of a dynamic. I get asked a lot about. And I think we all talk a lot about, for instance, um, how do we take care of ourselves in this period? It's been, and there's a sort of a, an acknowledgement amongst many people, especially the kinds of people who have not been so engaged in um, heated political activism until recently, that this is really hard, right? It's scary. There are terrible things happening. There are terrible things happening to people. We're paying attention um, in ways that perhaps we hadn't been, Um, and it's draining and you're exhausted and it feels like there's no way to win. And I get a lot of questions when I speak at colleges or whatever about like, oh my God, how do I take care of myself? And that's a valid question. I don't want to poo poo the question, right? Um, And and that's part of why we also numb ourselves, right? That's part of the story about why, there is a numbing effect like i can't bear to look at it anymore i get told all the time like i feel bad for you cuz you always have to look at it i have to look away and i've d- look i have also looked away i i went on a vacation this summer when i was done writing the book to my you know the not anywhere particularly you know exotic but i went to the farm where my mom grew up and i i did not pay attention for a couple of weeks i have done it too but one of the things that the other another sort of Dynamic that I'd love to be able to be clearer about is that a lot of the people who are talking about self-care are some of the people who have been able to be numb to this anger and to the horrifying realities until recently, right? And that not only is there a long history of people who were engaged in social movements that went on for decades, punishing decades. Look at the civil rights movement. The, you know, tear gas, beatings, lynchings, dogs, for decades, for decades in the Jim Crow South, and then even the years of the Civil Rights Movement. You know, the the from 1955 when Emmett Till is killed and, and Rosa Parks on the, sits on that bench to 1964, which is the Civil Rights Act, 1965, the Voting Rights Act. That is a decade of death and beatings. You can say the same thing about any the labor movement, where where strikers were beaten. Um, you know, it, and the labor movement obviously was a project that that has lasted centuries. Um, the suffrage movement, the abolition movement, these, we are, we are coming out of a period that I think was a post civil rights and post feminist, post gay rights era period after the major social movements in the second half of the 20th century, where especially amongst middle and upper class, relatively privileged white people, there was this false sense that we had fixed these things, that these movements were over. We saw it in the way the media treated the election of Barack Obama. Great, we elected a black president. We're gonna have the, the you know, Hillary Clinton is inevitably gonna be our next president. You know, clearly the, all the work that was done by generations before us solved our problems. And so it, that fair, fairy tale <laughs> permitted certain segment, uh, of the American population to, to be numb to a lot of this stuff, to not be angry every day because we could tell ourselves. And because our lives aren't affected by it every day. And that's where we get to, again, a white feminism and, and it's, and that's about, it's about class. It's about money. It's about privilege. It's about whiteness. Um, and I think that part of the lesson of this moment is not just like, Oh, right. Oh, this is, it's difficult to be angry every day or to feel thwarted every day or to feel feel fear and um, horror about what's happening every day. It's like it's also has to include the recognition that a we should have been all feeling this way for a long time prior to this and of course, many people are right I don't want to pretend as though we th- this 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 nation has been filled with activists you know that that have come that spend their lives absolutely devoted to trying to make the nation better and more equal and have never ceased but the mass reaction which is something that's happening sort of post 2016 is one that that has to acknowledge that those activists have always been out there, that the people who are doing Fight for 15, that the people who are fighting for domestic workers' rights, um, that have been talking about paid leave, that have been talking about prison reform, criminal justice reform. There, You know, the, this country is filled with people who have never not been angry and have never had even the ability to pretend that they could just relax yeah. and pat themselves on the back and feel like things were fixed because every day they are confronted with the grotesque injustices. And so part of the project of now, when you actually do have a mass number of people paying attention, is reminding them that this, this level of struggle is the norm for people who have derived fewer benefits from a white capitalist patriarchy up until now, right? And and so that's also part of the project of the book is saying like right, this this difficulty this should be our sort of permanent state as we continue to move forward to try to make things better. Yes. The
0: book it does that. It re it's a re it's an education. Um I think it was so powerful re, having it there in print and understanding that the proximity you have to white patriarchal privilege means that you are of course less likely to want to crash that system.
2: Right you derive benefits from and you are rewarded for protecting it. Now that happens in a lot of different directions. White women are in a Perhaps the best example, because they derive the most benefits as wives, girlfriends, daughters, sisters, friends, employees—the people who have the most proximity to to powerful white masculinity—and they're they're the beneficiaries of a kind of proximal power. And you can see that going back. These are the arguments um, that sort of foregrounded some of the arguments about suffrage and uh, and the the breaks between suffrage and abolition movements about. Granting what happened after emancipation, um, granting the vote to black men but not to women of any color, and there were intense movement-dividing fights um, over what that meant. And one of the arguments that was always made that is true is that white women had already had a kind of proximal power of enfranchisement, even though they weren't enfranchised themselves, because they had proximity to the, to the white men who, who were enfranchised since the founding. And that by enfranchising black men, black women would derive a similar proximal power, right? So there's also, um, and, and there's, there's truth in that, right? White women have had proximal power always. They have gained economic benefits they have had social and eventually professional benefits that have come from whiteness and their closeness to and affiliation with powerful white men that doesn't mean that they are not have not simultaneously been subjugated and oppressed by those white men in fact part of it is remaining dependent on them so the the power that they derive from white patriarchy, also leaves them dependent on white patriarchy. And that can be for paychecks, for family stability. So white women have been both dependent on powerful white men and incentivized to protect those white men's power because with that power comes adjacent benefits for those white women. Those dynamics have also served to separate white women from non-white women in any kind of sense of... um, coalition or sisterhood or whatever word you want to use for it, um, there have been all kinds of studies that have been done that say the benefits of white patriarchy, accorded to those white women, have made them more identified with white men than with the, than with non-white women with whom they might form a powerful coalition. So that's one of the functions of the way those dependency structures work. But also then it's interesting that the right can
0: then say like, pit women against each other.
2: Right. Well, this is the... So, there are a bunch of things happening. One is that it's we're talking about a subjugated majority. And you can frame that in a couple different ways. Um, patriarchy itself subjugates a majority of women. Women are a majority population. Um, they are politically, economically, socially, sexually subjugated by men. So, that's a majority. Going even more broadly, as I do in the book, you can define that majority as being everybody who's not white men, because white men were the founders, white men built the courts, the businesses, the laws, the institutions, the banks, the money, everything, all all these systems uh, on which the nation is built were built by and for white men. And that, you know, it was centuries before it was just not white men who were enfranchised, right? (laughs) These things you know, when it came to who could vote, who could be on the courts, who could, who had political value, who had civic value, who was identified as a citizen, all of those things, um, white men had this exclusive grip. And they still do, right? Even though so many of the social movements um, have altered the nature of that power. If you look at Congress, right? It's like women, are more than 50% of the population and less than a quarter of our federal representation. And that number is relatively true across the board in state legislatures. Um, you know, that's true amongst judges, the people who run the companies. Whatever metric you want to take, white men still have a disproportionate share of power. So then you can say this is a minority rule that extends not just over women, but over everybody who's not a white man. But how do you? how does minority rule persist. Because theoretically, if you have an angry majority that's subjugated and that wants to rise up against you, they have the numbers to do it. One of the ways that minority rule persists is it divides the majority against itself by offering different segments of that majority incentives to support or defend the minority power. So to men, you offer the benefits of patriarchy. And that that actually extends across classes, I mean, across races. So And classes. So patriarchy and the subjugation of women is something that is actually on offer not just to white men, but to men of all races. Um, You offer whiteness and white supremacy to white women. And these things work to divide the majority and discourage coalition cooperation and what fundamentally could be a challenge to the power structure.
0: Well, it's making me think of your uh, one of your other books, All the Single Ladies, and how these two books smash up against each other. How did All the Single Ladies, the book you wrote that kind of rocked the world, kind of how does that smash up against this book? And it feels like there's, there should be this incredible power in these two things meeting one another.
2: Well, I could never, th- They're in a funny way, the way I wrote those two books are so immensely different. I could never have written Good and Mad had I not written All the Single Ladies. And the contrast between them I think are quite telling When I set out to write All the Single Ladies, I thought I was going to write it very quickly. It was going to be about contemporary women and the move away from marriage. And I knew that fewer women were marrying and they were marrying at later ages. And what did it mean to sort of redefine um, adulthood for women? And how was it different depending on um, what were the experiences of that, of of being of living adulthoods that were no longer defined by the institution that used to organize gendered power, which was marriage, right? And how did that differ across, depending on your race, your economic status, where you lived, urban, rural, suburban? Uh, Those were the questions I thought I was going to explore and that it was going to be about contemporary women. And what I discovered when I started writing it, thinking I was going to write it in a year, was that there was this enormous history that I'd never been taught Um, and that I'd never really heard about about the history of women living outside of that institution in other eras when it was much more difficult to do so. And not only that, about how many of those women who had not been confined by that institution had been instrumental to some of the social movements that had fundamentally changed the conditions for women politically and economically in this country. Like There was a deep connection between women who were unmarried for some or all of their adulthoods and the women who had done so much of the work of organizing and of fundamentally participating in revolution. Revolutionary politics that had even the ground in some ways when it came to gender and race and and class right so in that book I, I i realized that there were stories about unmarried women all around the history of the labor movement the civil rights the abolition the suffrage movement um and that meant that that book was took five years to write basically and meant that I had to learn a lot of history that I'd never been taught and that wasn't exactly laid out in one place. I have always drawn on the work of scholars who've done incredibly, I mean, I feel guilty ever writing about history because I'm just working from the scholarship of other people who've devoted their lifetimes to digging up this history. But sort of that book was about me putting together some pieces about, oh, wait, there were single women right at the heart of this and there were single women right at the heart of this and then making the connection to contemporary politics. Now, all of that, sort of thinking that I'd done and having to learn the history over a period of years meant that when I started to think in the sort of winter of 2016, 2017, about how to make sense of the fury that I was feeling, and and anger was not new to me, right? I'm I'm a feminist writer, I've been angry for a long time in a lot of ways, Um, but that I still had felt sort of had to be tamped down or disguised or prettied up as something else and that I was trying to make sense of the sort of way it was bubbling in me and many people I knew at that point at a rate and a heat that I had never seen before. The fact that I had discovered this kind of what I saw and understood as a pattern around American history and and the women who had changed it but made me think about women's anger and how it had been obscured in our history. And I was drawing on some of the history that I'd learned. I learned about some of these people while writing All the Single Ladies. And I, one of the things I'd learned, though I'd not thought of it in that way when I wrote All the Single Ladies, was that so many of them were furious and that that's what was the spark underneath their activism. Now, I'd been looking at them as people who'd, who'd been living outside of marriage. And by the way, sometimes their living outside of marriage was also because they were furious. Susan B. Anthony from the beginning said, I never wanted to be married. Um, you know, there were, there were all kinds of women pathbreakers who'd said from the start, I don't want to be confined by this institution. And so there was some fury about that. But I was also looking specifically at their political fury, which is connected to a fury about marriage and the sort of gendered inequalities. Um, of, of marriage, as it has been historically defined, but I began to think like there were all these angry women, but I've never been taught about them as angry. In fact, in many cases, we're never taught about them at all. So when you look at the labor movement, I still think sort of of the labor movement as teamsters and the the you know, maybe Norma Ray, which was a movie in the 70s with Sally Field. <laughs> um, you know, but otherwise, I think of the of labor as a and the history of the labor movement, coal miners, air traffic controllers, teamsters, right? Teachers is a different thing. There is, there are certainly the teachers' unions which are which are feminized. But I knew from writing all the single ladies that the low, the women who young women who worked in the Lowell mills in New England had begun organizing in the 1830s and staged walkouts that were some of the first iterations of what would become the labor movement. I knew that it was young single women who were sort of the the fire beneath some of the great garment industry strikes of the early 20th century. 1909, it was Clara Lemlich who called for that that strike. I had read about her because she was unmarried. She was a young unmarried shirtwaist worker and, and labor organizer. But I was like, she was furious. She said, let's have a general walkout. There was a general walkout it worked. Um, almost all of the shirtwaist manufacturers agreed to the terms of the strikers. And one of the shirtwaist manufacturers that didn't was the triangle shirtwaist factory, which then burned two years later in 1911. And I had known from writing all the single ladies that 146 people were killed, most of them women and almost all of them unmarried women because it was young women who were working before they married. Um, Rose Schneiderman, a, a labor organizer, um, had witnessed that fire and was so angry that she gave one of the fieriest political speeches I've ever read um, at a memorial service for the dead and went on to change her life's course to work on some of the labor, the the workplace safety regulations that are still in place today. So I had read about this anger because I'd been reading about them as unmarried women. But I was like, this anger hasn't, I was never taught that this anger, like we have workplace safety regulations because. in part because there were women who were fucking furious about the conditions in which they were being asked to work they were furious about the danger that they endured every day the wages the physical costs and that rage is part of what powered a labor movement that still that has been weakened structurally weakened by the powerful over time, but that still is a crucial part of the American story about how we get anywhere closer to economic inequality in this country. And I'd never been told that there were angry women at the beginning of that story. And I began to think about that with regard to all of the movements that that we think of as transformative. Abolition, suffrage, the civil rights movement, Rosa Parks. I mean, this is a this is a narrative that I think has been slightly corrected in recent years, in part because Dan- Daniel McGuire wrote a book called At the Dark End of the Street. And there was there's been more education about who Rosa Parks was. But for years, including during the peak years of the civil rights movement, she was used in part as a figure who, who could be presented as non-threatening, as stoic and exhausted and tired. There were other women who had also refused to give up their seats on on buses before Rosa Parks, but she was picked in part because she could be presented as a certain kind of woman. That wasn't threatening. Wasn't threatening the
0: the white majority, right? right. It's like here's a calm woman we can
2: we can negotiate with. Right. And the thing and, and for years, women within the civil rights movement understood the sort of lack of actual attention and respect that was being paid within the movement to Rosa Parks. But the reality of Rosa Parks is that she was a lifelong furious organizer. She was, she was an investigator for the NAACP who worked investigating claims of gang rape against black women and of claims of rape by white women against black men that often were the justification for racial violence and lynching. Rosa Parks was a deeply political, deeply angry organizer, anger at at racial inequity and gendered inequity, And and sexual abuse motivated so much of her activism. And yet the way that we have, when I was in elementary school, the way I was taught still in the 1980s, the story of Rosa Parks was as like a sweet, calm woman. So part of my project here was going back and trying to unearth where the rage had been and where the rage had been catalytic, but also had been made invisible to us. Because that's a big part of what, and that's what happens all around us now, is that And we can, and part of my hope is that we can change our ears and eyes and how we're told about women's anger now, because it can either be recast still in the Rosa Parks mode as, you know, that the political protest comes from grief and stoicism, right? And I think there's a degree to which you see that, especially around some of the, the, um, the gun regulation fights, right? Where it's grieving parents or even grieving students. Well, of course they're sad. Well, they're also angry. Um, You know, Emma Gonzalez has made that abundantly clear. Sarah Chadwick has made that abundantly clear. But there is a sort of effort to make that anger palatable by saying, well, they're grieving, they're grieving. Yes, they are grieving, of course, but grieving doesn't preclude fury. Well, and also it's
0: palatable to who? Right, right. This is the whole thing, and I... I saw I was lucky enough to see Hannah Gatsby do her live show in New York and I loved that you know it's she's a comedian she makes people laugh essentially but she throws these hard truths at us and I love this point in the show where it turned and she was like I'm not going to make you laugh anymore right. you have to deal with my anger right. I'm not this isn't funny and I think that's kind of a What is it called? A metaphor for what's happening now. It's like, why do we have to, why do women have to make themselves palatable? And who
2: are we? who is our
0: audience that we're trying not to upset?
2: Well, it's also, it's a question of who is our audience, and it's also a question of who still has the power to tell the stories. So one of the things that I look at in the book is the Women's March. And the Women's March, is because it starts, we spoke earlier about how it starts as a kind of appropriative event and a deeply problematic one from a racial pr- perspective, in that it's white women who come up with the idea in the wake of an election in which white women have su- have supported Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton. And there is all kinds of deep fury between women about like, oh, now you're going to have an angry march. You, now you're going to have an angry march. You you voted for this guy, and now you're going to have your thing with your hats, right? And there's, there's anger, and that is real, real. Crucial work that, that has also to be pink done that shouldn't be pink. Right, right. That anger is so valuable. It's it's used. You know, when it when the march got covered, it was like, oh, racial division, racial division, Mars. That, well, there's division within every social movement yeah. that have, has ever existed that's what I love too, in this like, in this world. Right. Yeah. When you try to get a mass of people, which is what a social movement has to do, is bring a mass of people together, there is inevitably going to be discord, and that's been true of every every movement that has ever produced transformative change in this country and that and the tension has been over racism and and white supremacy over misogyny within the movement over homophobia within the movement over who has had the resources economically within movements this is this is true of every movement the incredible thing about the women's march is that despite being very reasonably and rationally riven by this kind of these resentments which are getting aired you know in 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 Really, I think valuable ways, and the leaders, Linda Sarsour says, contentious dialogue is by design. This is an argument that's been made for a long time. Audrey Lord was making it in the early 1980s, saying, you know, women, if they're going to come together, um, and try to push for, for generative change and and activism they have to air their anger the black women have to be able to talk about their anger at white women so this is all happening in the lead-up to the women's march the women's march happens it is the single biggest one-day protest in this country's history i mean political protest That is a massive, it is the day after the inauguration of this president, and women in cities around the country, not just in D.C., not just in New York or L.A., cities around the country and around the world, in Antarctica, in Alaska, you know, women are coming out and expressing their fury, and they're doing this. There is a, a form of coalition that that super, it doesn't it doesn't cancel out and it doesn't undo the resentments that have been aired racially. It is that the resentments that have been aired and that are difficult are not preventing coalition. And that is so politically crucial, it's remarkable. There's Jess Morales, who's a left organizer, says in my book, she has a great quote, and I'm not gonna get it right, about looking at the people at the Women's March, um, and seeing the domestic workers right next to the, standing right next to the rich lady with a sign about her vagina and being like, okay, this is like America, <laughs> it's happening. And it, that, that event is so powerful, but then look at how it's talked about the next day. I went back and I looked at the way that the pundits talked about it. The guys who still have the power to talk on the air, right? So the men who still have the Sunday news shows, the, the pundits, There was an enormous amount of dismissal of this event in the days after. The morning after, I went back and I looked at George Stephanopoulos's show. He didn't ask questions about it. He had Kellyanne Conway on. She brought it up three times, derisively, obviously because it was in opposition to. She knew it was. She understood it was a thing, and George Stephanopoulos like just wouldn't ask about it. He was interested in talking about the crowd size. And finally, when they talk about it. The, fo- the comment they focus on were a set of comments that Madonna made. And she, Madonna, before she performed, said, I'm furious. Of course, I think about blowing up the White House, um, but I know it won't do any good. But yes, I'm fucking furious. And that, I mean, there are people, senators spoke, Angela Davis spoke, lifelong activists spoke. And the one thing that the that the Sunday News Show picks up on is that Madonna says, I wanted to blow up the White House, right? And that she actually voices fury, and then that's cast as completely inappropriate. So here's the one they they managed to pick out one soundbite from this day of international protest that is a, a pop star saying she wants to blow up the White House. It's a great way to take all that anger, that mass anger that was on display, and just dismiss it as like, here was a dumb and inappropriate and, and violent thing that Madonna said. And then they could just toss it away in the wastebasket. And that was the coverage in that interview. And then the next interview, Chuck Schumer came on and said, First thing he said to George Stephanopoulos was, "Oh, I was at the Women's March in New York." And Stephanopoulos's question to him was, "Were you comfortable there?" As if that was the politically crucial question to be asked of somebody who was at the Women's March. A man, did it make you uncomfortable? Women's anger discomfits men, and therefore the men who are going who still have the power to talk about it on TV and write about it in our newspapers, and it is. You know, obviously the media has become more diverse than it was 30 years ago, 50 years ago, obviously a century ago. But fundamentally, one of the revelations of me too is how much power white men still have in the realms that tell us our political stories. They also help to tell the story of women's anger right now, and the dismissal that they expressed for the women's march in the wake of it. They really told on themselves there. They really told on themselves. They didn't take it seriously.
0: Okay, I don't want to divert too much, but I want to know when... I'm so interested about when every woman gets politicized. And I read that in your book, there was a moment where both your mom and your aunt had PhDs. Mm. This made me so angry. I don't want to like go back in history mm. because we're so in the present. Right. But I want to know... <laughs> Like growing up in your household, can you tell us about the, the the scenario you talk about in the book about?
2: You want me to just tell the story yeah, of my mom. Yeah. So my mom and her sister grew up on a potato farm in northern Maine, like a working potato farm, an extremely rural, extremely Republican household. Yeah. Um, and it was a. It's an, It's an area that even in a sort of mid twentieth century farming. Economy that where things got industrialized. Their farm was not industrialized. My mom went to a one-room schoolhouse. Um, they go on to go to college, and then they both go on. They're five years apart to get PhDs. And this was during me too. And we were talking about. And this gets to this idea about. I mean, a lot of a lot of what I think about is both the telescoping of like long-term change, how these things take centuries, and also how it can happen very quickly and very suddenly in part because you change the rules. And this was something that really became clear to me during Me Too, I was, you know, the Christmas holidays, Christmas, New Year's, I was sitting around a family table and we were talking about Me Too and how these things happen and it feels like this conflagration and then, you know, and, and they were comparing their experiences. So they both came from this rural community, they both went on to get PhDs from the same institution in the same field. And my mother, who's older, talked about how when she went on the job market, and this is in maybe, gosh, 1968, 69, I should probably get the date exactly right, but um, she was still told in interviews, we don't, we're not hiring a woman. Um, We already have a woman in our department. We have one of you, Um, one interview she went on, and it was in an academic job market she was interviewing for a position as a as a professor of english and one guy had her come to the interview and said well we're not hiring a woman for this but i feel like you don't get any women don't get any practice so we thought we'd have you come in so you could get some practice interviewing and and she's told that at the beginning of the interview and my aunt who's 5 years her junior by the time she went on the job market 5 years later again it's same degree same specialty same university. All of those practices were illegal because anger had changed them. about employment and over a long process, right? That yeah, five year yeah, window yeah. happened to be a window when anger at hiring discrimination and inequity had bubbled up. People had brought cases and moved through the courts and then it gets decided. And then you have discrimination law that says you can't say we're not hiring a woman for this position. You, You know, people will tell you stories. You're you're Mothers and grandmothers will tell stories of how the one ads used to be for women and for men and two separate set of employment ads and that the women's could also say things like needs to be pretty has great legs secretary, you know, Um, that all is in our very, very recent past. And so there's this weird simultaneous reality. that this stuff takes so long and is so circular and, and that we move backwards just as we've moved forwards and all of that. And that's one of the things that I've had to absorb as I learn more about our own history and the process that we're in the midst of and try to look toward the future and reckon with the fact that the damage that's being done right now is going to be stuff I'm fighting to undo until I die. Um, at the same time, we also have to look at the moments where change can be explosive and fast and where the rules can change very suddenly. And it is uncomfortable. It's That's another thing I want to emphasize these things are really uncomfortable and we see that a lot around the discussion of me too well i have um, you know you would, how am I gonna flirt? A, that's it's not actually about flirtation, it's about um, harassment and discrimination. But there's also this sense, like, well, the things I was allowed to do that I was encouraged to do that people looked away from, and in fact, that might even have benefited me because they added to my general, you know, aura of power and, and appeal. Now you're telling me that like I can't do those things or I could lose my job if I do those things. And that is a discomfort. It's like a discomfort that happened in the second wave when there was a real questioning of of The dynamics of traditional hetero marriage, where there People had entered marriages, hetero marriages, often very young, you know, as teenagers or in their 20s, especially in the 1960s when the marriage rate was very high and the the average age of marriage was very low, with these expectations that, you know, the man was going to be the breadwinner and have the economic power and the woman was going to do the domestic work. And then the feminist movement came along and did a lot of things, but among them was change the expectations for what women might reasonably expect to want from their lives. And so in the middle of those marriages, suddenly you had a lot of women saying, wait a minute, I don't actually think it's right that I'm cooking your dinner every night and taking care of the kids and that you then don't And have do anything. no economic power either. Right, and to have no leverage, no economic power, and I want something different. And, and you got a very high divorce rate. And a lot of people saying, a lot of men saying, the rules change. You came into this willingly, and that's true. They're not wrong. The rules, when we have these moments, we change the rules. And for those who've been playing by an old set of rules, it is discomforting, right? It is discomforting, I am sure, to George Stephanopoulos and Chuck Schumer to hear Madonna screaming about blowing up the White House or whatever. The discomfort stems from the rebellious part of potentially revolutionary politics and social change, If you want to change the power structures, you do have to change the rules. And that upends things. It makes those who've been playing by one set of rules suddenly have to answer for their participation in what have been exposed as unequal uses and abuses of power.
0: Well, and in the book, you also talk about being in several offices over your career and having this kind of light bulb moment of realizing, wait, If they had thought I was their equal, they would have never harassed me in this way because there would have been consequences. And actually, like, hopefully, we're at a place, I don't know, where there are consequences. Like, men thought there weren't, there were no
2: consequences. There have been no consequences. I would direct you to our sitting president, Donald Trump, who was exposed as an admitted sexual predator and grabber of women by their vaginas in a month before his election, and who then that revelation prompted dozens of women to speak more specifically. First of all, thousands of women, millions of women to talk about their experiences of harassment and assault. But then, specifically, a lot of women to tell very detailed stories about how Donald Trump himself had grabbed them, had molested them on a plane, had groped them, had stuck his tongue down their throats against their will without invitation. He got elected president of the United States the next month over a qualified woman, however you felt about her. Qualified, deeply competent woman. That, what does that convey? no consequences. And that is very recent. So Me Too has brought individual repercussion for a lot of people. And that is part of this process of understanding that there are now, that there may be consequences. But look, we have just been in the midst of a Supreme Court nominating process in which And I don't know when this is going to air. Do we have to acknowledge that we're in the midst of something that we don't? I think we
0: should. And we'll be able to say ahead of time, you know, we are in the middle. Like last night we went to bed thinking it would happen on Monday. And now his accuser has said, I want an FBI investigation.
2: Right. So as we're speaking, we don't know how this is going to end. And by the time you're listening to this, you will know how it's ended. But I would say right now today that the deep probability um, is that we will confirm a Supreme Court justice, despite what now sound to me, and who knows what we'll learn later, but which now sound to me like deeply credible claims that he attempted to rape um, a woman when he was 17. And so that's, and, and we'd already, we have a man who's been sitting on the Supreme Court for 27 years who was confirmed By a Judiciary Committee that was led by Democrats, um, that Joe Biden headed up, Um, he was confirmed despite extremely detailed complaints of sexual harassment against Anita Hill with three women who were willing to back her up and who weren't even called. And he has been making our laws, right? Clarence Thomas has been amongst the justices who have paved the way directly for the election of Donald Trump by helping to gut the Voting Rights Act, by deciding Citizens United that let so much corporate money into politics and, and affirmed corporations' right to basically determine our political outcomes. Clarence Thomas was confirmed and put in the position to exert that kind of power over our politics, which, of course, have power over the inequities that we're talking about here are gonna have over who's enfranchised, over who gets to cast their vote. These are the things, these are the questions that go back to the suffrage and the abolition movements, right, of who gets to have bodily autonomy. It's all these men,
0: firstly they protect other men because they're afraid of what could happen to them if they're, you know, Investigated.
2: This is part of the damage that is done when you talk about sexual harassment. And there is a way in which we talk about individual monsters. It's systemic. When you connect power in a political or economic sense to sexual power, when you are dependent on the powerful men, they are much freer to abuse their power without repercussion, because there's danger in making them face repercussion. Ted Kennedy is a great example of that. He remains hailed as the the liberal lion of the Senate, the great senator, the great liberal. He was, he had to be silent during the Anita Hill hearings because he himself had such a terrible history of his treatment of women. Now, consider that we almost had a similar outcome here, because who, sits on the, who was sitting on the Judiciary Committee? Al Franken, who was accused by eight women, certainly not of rape or of, of that any kind of violence, but of groping, of harassment. And there is one of the most inflammatory questions that has come out of Me Too is about what happened to Al Franken. Was it unjust? There were eight women who came forward and told stories about him grabbing their ass. Uh, there was the first woman who had a picture of him making a joke while she was asleep on a USO tour of him pretending to grab her breasts as a joke, to get laughs, right? He asked for an a ethics investigation. His colleagues all agreed, yes, we'll wait for the ethics investigation. More allegations came forward. This was moving up to a, an election in Alabama that was going to ter- determine the the power balance within the Senate, in which the Republican had been accused of sexual assault of teenagers. It was giving Republicans... Like, the, the kinds of damage that were being that was being done in the wake of the allegations against Al Franken in an odd way and this is not to diminish the sort of whatever the people who he groped experienced and and the distress that that may have caused them but the kinds of damage that was being done by by the allegations which of course so the damage that if the allegations are to be believed, that were done by the fact that Al Franken may have groped a lot of women's asses, um, you know, consciously or unconsciously, that was extending well beyond the question of how much damage did he do physically or sexually in terms of groping. And that is characteristic of a lot of questions of harassment. It does, the, the damage and the risk incurred when, when power is abused in that way extend to colleagues and to how your business and you know are you imperiling the paychecks of the of the people who are working in your office who if you if your bad behavior winds up costing you, they're going to pay too by losing their jobs. All of those things were happening. There was damage being done to the party and to his female colleagues. Everywhere his female colleagues, who were very much on the side of Me Too, and many of them are the women who do the work of talking about sexual assault and harassment in the military or on college campuses, were asked everywhere, why are you supporting Al Franken? It was damaging their ability to do their work. And they asked for him to resign after several weeks of this and and, and, and there are people, they are still paying for that. Kirsten Gillibrand, who happened to be the first to call for his resignation, but by a matter of like two minutes. There were 20 of his colleagues who actually asked him to resign because they felt that this was damaging um, the party and that this, they had to take a line on this. Um, the first one, Kirsten Gillibrand, has been tagged everywhere as an opportunist. Donors say, oh, we're not gonna donate to her if she runs for president. She is, in many circles, a pariah because she brought down this beloved man But let's think about how he, Al Franken sat on the Judiciary Committee. One of the things that people don't acknowledge is that those women who called for him to resign had no good option, because if they hadn't called for his resignation, all of their work would be imperiled. They would be called hypocrites. Oh, well, you didn't call on your colleague, Al Franken, to resign, so how can you be serious when you come after this Republican for harassment or assault? It would have imperiled their integrity and done damage to their ability to do their jobs. Al Franken would have sat on the Judiciary Committee. He's a great questioner. He's. I love Al Franken. I admire Al Franken. I have many friends who are feminists who have worked for large portions of their career with Al Franken. This is not about vilifying Al Franken, but like Ted Kennedy, Al Franken would have been slightly muzzled in questioning a Supreme Court candidate about harassment or assault charges because everybody, including all the Republicans, would have said, "You've been accused of this," and and you were. Given, you know, the permission to to stay, your colleagues supported you. How he would have been accused of, he wouldn't have been able to ask the questions. And instead, in part because Franken resigned, leaving a space in the Judiciary Committee, and because ultimately after his resignation, Roy Moore, the alleged harasser and um, predator in Alabama, lost to the Democrat and the Democrat Doug Jones. They, the Democrats won a Senate seat in Alabama and that shifted the balance and permitted another space to open up on the Judiciary Committee. Kamala Harris and Cory Booker took, took those seats and they were probably the most aggressive questioners. Um, they didn't have to keep their mouths shut. About sexual harassment and, or about other things, and they were—I thought that they were pretty effective during the initial hearings of Kavanaugh. So all of this stuff—it's—it's—it's it, it's, it's systemic. So it's systemic. You can't just look at—is this individual person good or bad? Or, and what? This—these are questions about power and its uses. And it extends way beyond the idea that there are just a couple of individual monsters and if we can rid, the, rid these professions of bad apples, everything will be fine. No, this is about how power, dependency, and subjugation works within these massive structural um, entities. And this is sort of uprooting all that and it's really complicated and it's really hard and it's really painful. Read my book.
0: <laughs> I know because we have to go soon. You have done the work of of linking this together for us, where where do you think we go from now? Like what I loved, you mentioned there's an organisation called Run For Something mm-hmm. or Run For Anything. <laughs> and I loved that. I want to get T-shirts with that made on it because I'm like just, I'm thinking to myself, I'm like what the hell, where can I participate like do you think participating in the political system now or in communities is the only way to make no I think there are a
2: million ways to make change and I you know I mentioned run for something in part it's a it's a organization founded by a woman who actually Amanda Littman a young woman who actually talks about how anger has been a motivating factor in her um political activism um I mentioned that along with a spate of other political organizations about um, Run for Something pushes for young people to, to run for office, first-time candidates, um, you know, sort of roughly under 35 to run for office, and they've had a terrific um, success rate over this past, past year and a half. Um, but there are a million other sort of political... Um, organizations that are pushing new kinds of people into politics, people who have been underrepresented historically. You can look at Higher Heights, um, Jessica Bird, who works on... These are organizations that work to run women of color, people of color for offices that have been so pre- predominantly held by, by white Americans and by white men especially over the years. So there are all kinds of political organizations that uh, work to change our representation and get it something closer to actually being representative and of course i encourage people to look at that look at those avenues also to look at individual candidates something that i think is happening that is crucial to changing power structures is that this rage that people are feeling especially people who some of again the the people who hadn't been angry up until recently and who've been kind of politically somnambulant, who've been just sort of not paying that much attention. The anger that they felt has prompted them to get real civic educations about their local representatives, about how policy works, about how elections work. And I think you actually see a population that is far more invested in participating, whether that means organizing, canvassing, protesting, fundraising, knocking on doors than we've ever seen before, and that that has the potential down the road, especially if it's not something that's just... And so we don't see any sign that this is going to fall off, right? But if it's something that people get invested in for the rest of their lives, that has the possibility of changing our democracy, but it needs to, because we also have to look at the way that the structures are still forming when we get a Supreme Court nominee who's likely to be confirmed, whether it's Kavanaugh or whether it's another one of Donald Trump's picks that are going to tighten the voting laws, make it harder for more people to vote. So we have these forces working against each other. But it's not just politics. It's also in how we talk to and listen to other people, right? So it's about communicating more about what we actually are thinking and feeling, paying more attention, getting these kinds of educations around um, not only electoral politics and how they work, or, or civic participation, but about the history of structural racism, structural misogyny, economic inequality, understanding how um, fights for fair wages tie into you know, what you've historically thought of as your pro-choice activism, how that ties into policy around subsidized daycare and parental leave in a reproductive justice movement, broadening our ideas of what activism entails, that it's not necessarily just about the one thing that That the one thing that motivates a person is probably an issue that is deeply connected to to realities that motivate fellow activists in other fields and and thinking about the ways that those struggles are interconnected. Part of that is about talking to each other. And that's part of what I want to emphasize that the expression of anger in women is so discouraged in part because it is a tremendously powerful communicative and connective tool. And anger is muffled and discouraged and laughed at and marginalized in part because the powerful don't want women to talk to each other about how angry they are. Because in talking to each other, that's the beginning of organizing. It's the beginning of seeing how these issues are connected, seeing how these movements might be stronger working together. But I also want to be careful about just advocating, like, go all get mad, because the thing I want to make clear is that it's not just about individual women yelling. It's about changing a system that doesn't take their voices seriously, doesn't listen to them. Um, there are perils in women getting angry. Um, you know, if a, a woman of color gets angry at being pulled over by a cop for no reason, that anger is a real risk for her. She she can get arrested, killed, shot. Um, A woman who is angry about an unjust situation in her, you know, at her workplace who protests runs the risk of getting fired, of not getting promoted, of not getting the raise that she needs. There are costs still. There is an entire system that does, for real, penalize women for expressing their dissent and for getting angry and for raising their voice. And I don't want to pretend that that system is not in place. I, getting to write a book about anger, am extraordinarily privileged. I have, I am getting literally paid for it. And I am getting the job of my putting this in a book is to have people take my anger seriously. That's something that does not happen in the vast majority of cases, that women's anger is not taken seriously. So the thing I would urge um, is not the like, go be angry, yell. It's no. Yes, great. If you're in a position to do that and you respect the other voices, (laughs) terrific. But far more crucial is altering the system that doesn't take women's anger seriously. So listen, ask questions, hear the anger of other women. Don't permit more powerful force, for, forces to tell you that it's ugly or unpleasant or that they sound crazy or that you don't want to be associated with it. That's part of a system that works to discourage and disempower um, those who want to participate in dissent in a way that is that could create meaningful change. <laughs> One, the book is about women's anger about all kinds of injustice, right? Um, economic inequality, uh, racial injustice. One of the trickiest forms of anger is the anger at misogyny. And this for a really stru- a structural reason that actually makes sense as soon as you think about it. Um, it goes back to the idea that women are a majority population and that they're... Um, their comparative lack of power is an example of a subjugated majority. What that means is that every man has a woman in his life and every woman has a man in his life, in her life. So we are dependent on those men in many cases, again, financially, familially, um, emotionally. Uh, The the people, if, if to get women to acknowledge and get mad at the ways that misogyny um, damages them, and does harm to them. It means identifying as their oppressors men who are men who may be in their beds, in their homes, their dads, their friends, their brothers, their husbands, the fathers of their children. Um, and to challenge that and to alter the rules is a tremendous risk because in many cases, women love those men, need those men, don't want to alienate those men, or will pay a price by alienating them. These, the, the costs of actually challenging misogyny mean potential tremendous change to women's lives and their most intimate relationships. We feel deep conflict, one of, the, one of the undercurrents and one of the conversations that I know that I have had a million times during Me Too, and that has been written about despite all of the stuff that says, oh, there's been no nuance in the Me Too people. No, everybody who has been pressing for an acknowledgement of the, the pervasiveness and ubiquity of sexual harassment and the damage it does to women, all of the women that I know have also been talking about with each other and with the men in our lives that we feel bad. I don't want to imperil this guy, but he did this thing. I'm worried. What if he's going to lose his job? What about his wife? What about his kids? There's been, I think, many of us who have participated in this conversation around sexual harassment and assault, even those of us who are most firmly and passionately on the side of uncovering this and the idea that this process is correct, necessary, and overdue, also feel deep conflict about the tolls it's having on many of the men who we know and love or like, or even don't like, but still feel bad for right this is really hard and it's one of the reasons that that um in the women's movement in particular the sort of movement that objects to and challenges patriarchy you see it rise up maybe every 50 or 60 years and then it goes back because it's really hard it's really hard it's really confusing and it's really painful Um, and you know, I, I write in the book quite a bit about the people who've wrestled with these pains and these costs, um, you know, and the the feeling that maybe once you've seen everything, once the scaffolding has been exposed, once you can identify the inequities, whether in your relationship or your workplace, and you suddenly see how... Men have profited from your subjugation and the way that you've been damaged. It's hard to unsee it. So it's really hard to get women to do this. And we're in one of those moments right now where that veil is being lifted, where where we're getting a view of the the inequality. And it's a very painful and very confusing period. I don't know how to advise people because it depends. Everybody's situation is different. The, The sort of personal versus and connected to the political acknowledgement of this there I write in my book I in the in the past six months and at sort of toward the end of my reporting my book I began to talk to some people who started to talk about how there were divorces happening amongst their activist friends there's a woman who is a um, activist in Arizona who tells me in the book that that five of her friends are getting divorced and in part it's not just because it's not quite as simple as like you know, you're a patriarchal ogre. It's like men's, in many cases, again, this notion of changing the rules, men's inability to deal with the fact that their partners are politically activated and energized in a way that they haven't been until very recently and that they seem like different people. There's, a lo- there's been a lot of incredible writing about this, about women who found their boyfriends or husbands, you know, again, or fathers, friends, colleagues, saying like, wow, You've changed because you're so, you know, you're you're mad all the time or all you care about is activism. When I was in Georgia reporting um, in the summer of 2017 about the suburban women, again, a population of women who had been kind of quiet about their politics. Many of them had been Democratic voters but had never put signs out, had never voiced. They didn't even know there were other Democratic voters, living women living down the block from them because they'd always been quiet about it. And then in the wake of 2016, they were so mad that they yelled and they heard each other and they began organizing together around, in that case, it was the the um, campaign of John Ossoff. I interviewed them and they were all describing themselves like they were, they were sort of alchemically changed. Like I'll never go back to being the person that I was before. Many of them talked about like, I'm not cooking dinners. My kid is like, what's in the fridge, mom? Like we're going to go out again. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm putting my day job second. And these often are women who ha- are bearing the brunt of the domestic responsibility in their homes for raising their kids, working full-time jobs, and yet now devoting such a massive portion of their lives to organizing and and participating in protest and and Uh, to electoral participation, their lives are fundamentally changed. And, and many of them talked even then, which was still comparatively early days about like, yeah, no, this is altering the dynamics of my family. And so it's not just women saying, I want a divorce because I've suddenly recognized the sexism in our relationship. It's not always that, like, it's not about that. It can be also just about altering your consciousness in a way that somehow changes you. And that may change your marriage, and it may change how your partners and your friends feel about you. I, there are other. I, there's another woman in my book, Syra Rao, who um, actually went up running for office, and she was a Democrat, and she was a Hillary supporting Democrat, and she became incredibly activated around what she felt was the revelation of white supremacy amongst her amongst her white feminist friends. Um, and this has really driven her and it's changed a lot of her friendships. This is something that she's written about and talked about a lot. It's altered the nature of her friendships. This kind of, ang- the expression of anger is so is so discouraged and so muffled that when it finally comes out, it can really change the dynamics of your life. You get a sense of how much of your life is, is perhaps built on the idea that you're not going to give voice to your frustrations and that you're, you're gonna swallow it and you're gonna deal with it and you're gonna find another way to you know, to work it out. And, and that if that changes and you start to let it out and you start to be open and direct about what you're angry about, that it's gonna change your relationships, it might change your marriage, it might change the nature of your family, it might change your friendships. And there's a way that an anti-feminist um, sentiment says, well, that's bad, look at all these ruined marriages. But I don't believe that's necessarily bad. If the terms of the world in which we were living were predicated on the idea that we were going to muffle everything we thought or felt and every piece of dissent, we had to just bury it deep down inside us. I'm not sure that it's a bad thing that we're altering altering these worlds and altering even these intimate relationships, though it's certainly hard and, and well, emotionally taxing. And you mentioned in the book,
0: too, that it's an opportunity for men to recreate what it is to be a man as well. Absolutely. Like it gives them such a, you know, I've, I've got to speak to Caitlin Moran, who's so brilliant, and she talked about, like, how women have this elastic kind of what it, what we can be as women has, has grown mm-hmm. and we feel empowered mm-hmm. and things. But I think there's an opportunity for men to get to have see different and explore different sides of themselves. There's
2: a terrific opportunity for men. Feminism has always been good for men in terms of being able, this is what, the the ideal is that we can all have more opportunity and more flexibility. What's bad is that what is, you know, the idea What's bad for men and what they perceive as being a negative is the reduction of power. And for those who find that intolerable, um, there's going to be a resistance to feminism. But there are a whole lot of men who are excited by, thrilled by this. Um, there are. I don't want to just focus on the guys who are like. I can't stand this anymore because there are a whole lot of men who are deeply motivated, who really want to see more kinds of equality, gendered equality, racial equality. It also opens up the idea that we could look to women and especially women of color for political leadership just opens up you know how much of our population we have shut down? We have such crap leadership in the politically in the world, right? We have just such meager options. Um, in part because we have limited the playing field um, for so long, for all of our history. And that's one of the things you see with these women coming into elections and first time candidates winning. Look at how much excitement there is over Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, right? Oh my God, this she's wonderful, she's extraordinary. And it's like, right, we basically kept all kinds of women like her off the playing field for all of our history. And this is, look at Stacey Abrams, Lucy McBath, Lauren Underwood. I mean, you can name, there are, there are hundreds of them across the country who are inspiring so much excitement and passion in voters. And even in some cases, the media is like, well, that is an interesting candidate right there. It's like, right, you have truly kept a door closed to entire populations up until very recently. And when you open those doors, there's the possibility for a kind of energetic leadership that, that we might hope can take us to a better place as a nation. And I would think that men and women should be excited about that, and many men are. I think we
0: have to end now, but it seems we could talk forever. But well, Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for Giving being. me space to
2: yell loudly this is, over a no, table. But, it's <laughs>
0: so good. but also... I think, I mean, to your point just then, because your book does go back in history, it kind of gives us a foundation to try and have these conversations in a way that is grounded in what's come before us. and And the book's also so inspiring. We want to learn about these badass women who just came ahead like before, and you know are examples of how we can be.
2: It's like we've forgotten. I want to say something about that learning about the badass women. A lot of these women, as I said, I didn't know the first thing about until relatively recently in my life. And I am a feminist journalist who's been a feminist journalist for over 15 years. And there are so many of these people who I only heard like little strands up or what I heard. Abigail Adams is a great example of this. For years, I grew up and I knew that Abigail Adams had said, remember the ladies, which is like such a low bar. Just remember us, right? <laughs> but like, I, I hadn't ever been asked to focus on the fact that she also threatened a rebellion in that same letter where she says, you know, if you don't, we'll stage a revolt if we're not represented. I mean, there's so much that we're not taught and this book I have to say I don't want to minimize it read my book but like it scratches the surface of how much history has basically been kept from us or shrouded in some kind of like alternate version in which these women were all sort of docile and like interested in politics but in fact when they were raging beasts of progressive ideas and thinking that was going to ultimately transform the country and they've just been obscured uh, from us. And so um, this is, I'm glad I wrote this book quickly, which I did because I wanted to get it out because I wanted it to be um, useful to people in an immediate sense. But there's a part of me that's like, I wish I could write an expanded edition of this that I could spend the next 10 years on. Um, you can. Unearthing all this, the, you know, all kinds of other stories. Thank you
0: so much, Rebecca. Thank you for having me, And How can we follow you on this journey and
2: the explosion that will be the book? <laughs> At our Tracer. And I write for New York Magazine. That's where I work. And I cover all of this. I'll be covering the midterm elections. I will be, you know, taking us into 2020 um, at New York Magazine. Thanks for all your work. Thank you so much.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. My big takeaway was that I need to read books like Rebecca's so I understand the incredible women that have come before me and all the things they've done to allow us to have the freedoms we have now. I learnt that it's also about giving credit where credit's due and always being willing to learn and listen from people who have experiences different than our own. I hope you enjoyed the show. Please let us know. I'm sure this one might be a controversial episode. You can contact us, leave a message at Lit Up Show on Twitter or Instagram.